Tonight we want to talk about uh, our second commandment. And so if you would go ahead and turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 4, we're going to be reading verses 15 through 24. And before you, we do that, uh, as you guys are turning, I want to ask you this question, kind of lay some foundation. Have you ever thought about the, just the, the nature of celebrity, or celebrityhood, or, or just what it means to be a celebrity? See, the idea of celebrity influence is actually not a, a really new idea. It's really kind of come in with the birth of motion pictures, as you had in the turn of the century entertainment based solely on radio and so voice, the motion pictures, when they came in, added a whole new dynamic. Now you had a voice to match with a face. It wasn't just some you know, talking box. And so as people were watching these motion pictures, hearing the voices when they later on became what they called talkies or actually moving pictures with voices attached to them and synced up, you now had a face to put to that. So you had this idea of the celebrity, right? This figure that is not just a voice, but a person, and you could mimic them. You could take on their mannerisms and their traits. You could dress like they dress, walk like they walk, go to the places that they go, and actually, in some ways, take part in the celebrity lifestyle. Now, we see this very much in today's culture, but nowhere really is this more prevalent than the idea of the celebrity poster. Now, if you're a kid growing up like I did in the 90s, I'm sure you had plenty of these celebrity posters. Um, back in the 80s, my wife told me that they used to have magazines like Teen Beat or Tiger Beat or Bop or all these things like that. And in there, there would be these posters that you, know, you could put on the wall um, I never did that, frankly, but that doesn't mean I didn't have my own posters as well. Uh, this is really exemplified most by a very famous poster of an image captured in 1976. It's of a woman, blonde, uh, smiling at the camera, kind of an impromptu moment that was actually caught almost accidentally, if you look at the history of the image, there in a red swimsuit, with a background of a kind of uh, southwestern-style blanket. And I'm sure you probably guys have already seen all this. You probably know what I'm talking about. It's the very famous, or I guess infamous, Farrah Fawcett poster from 1976. She was coming off her, uh, or in the height of her fame as one of Charlie's Angels, and they captured this image. This image became iconic. Now, at the time... All the girls wanted her hair, started a whole movement. Well, the guys pretty much just, I mean, wanted her. <laughs> but this image has sold to this date upwards of about 1,200 million copies. Now, what I find fascinating about this is this image has become one of the most iconic and commercially successful images ever printed. And to really show the power of what I'm talking about, Farrah Fawcett died in 2009, so almost 13 years ago. But yet this image, this poster, still outsells all others, even though she's been dead for, almost, or for over a decade. You see, whenever we think about celebrities, we start to idolize these people. We put ourselves somewhat in their realm. Even though we know we can't be there, we try to establish ourselves in the place. And so we start 
to buy what they want to buy or what they buy. We want to get whatever they endorse. We want to dress how they dress. We want the lifestyle that they have. And we elevate these people almost to a, like a demigod status. You know, they, uh, whatever their endeavor is, whatever, whether they're sports or movies or music, we continue to basically offer up, and I'm using that word intentionally, our time and our money and our adoration to these giants in the industry. Have you ever noticed that whatever act of worship it is, and again, I use that word intentionally, by worship I mean how we can interact with these celebrities in ways to keep them in their status, right? So if it's a sports celebrity going to a game, buying their merch, if it's a uh, an actor or an actress, it's going to the movies that they're in. It's, uh, you know, participating in, in the movie-going experience and then purchasing their movies at home. If they're a musician, it's downloading or purchasing their music. Whatever act of worship it is that continues to keep these celebrities, these almost social demigods in status, costs a lot. You know, I, I figured it up the other day. If you want to go to a sporting game, I mean, it's going to cost you pretty much an arm and a leg. If you want to go to the movies with a family of four, get snacks and drinks and take everybody there, it's, you pretty much got to mortgage a kidney just to pay for this thing. And I don't even want to talk about all the YouTube influencers and all the things that they endorse. That's a whole different realm. You see, the problem is these people represent to us only a sliver of moments in time. They're frozen in place. Think about the image, like I said, of Farrah Fawcett. She's obviously been dead over a decade. She's definitely not the same young woman that she was in that photograph from 1976. But that image still continues to outsell all others, even though not only is that time past, but she herself is past. What I want to do tonight is look at this idea. It's a natural concept within our own psyche that we, in our sinfulness, look to things around us for any type of entertainment and glorification, and God has a problem with this. Today we're going to look at probably what I think is one of his most personal commandments to his people, to not make any image of God and worship it other than Him. So, let's go ahead and read Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 24. This is out of the ESV. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves. In any form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them to serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to the peoples under the whole earth, under the whole heaven, sorry. 
But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land, I must not go over to Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, therefore, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourself a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now, I want to give some context here. This is spoken by, or, or this is by Moses, giving his kind of final commands to the people of Israel. Notice when he says, I am no longer going to be able to go forward with you. I will not be able to cross the River Jordan. If you remember, he, uh, he brazenly struck the rock instead of just doing what the Lord said and, and to create water and made this kind of overshowiness so that people would kind of think he's important. And because of that, God said, nope, you're not following. You're not going with the people. You will die out here in the wilderness. And so Moses is now looking to his people and, say, and after admitting his mistake, saying, look, I messed up. You guys have to go on and fulfill the promise. But you have to remember to stay away from this desire to create for yourself something to worship. Now, before we go further, I really want to look at the idea of idolatry and focus more on what does it mean? So Merriam-Webster's definition of idolatry is to worship a physical object as God. That's the first definition. The second definition is an immoderate or excessive amount of attachment or devotion to a thing. Now, I want to look at these two definitions because I think that there are some benefits here in both, but neither one really comes close, I think. First off, the worship of a physical object is God. That truly is a form of idolatry, but there are other things that you can worship that are not physical. So this definition obviously doesn't cut it. Let me give you an example. Yes, we can worship an idol, like an actual thing. Let's say I worship this podium for whatever reason. Or you could worship fame. You, should work, you could worship glory. That could be your idol. Success could be your idol, your job. Well, those really aren't, as we think of, physical objects. They may be objects in a you know, metaphysical sense, but they're not objects that you can go up and grab hold of. So the first definition, I don't think, cuts it. It just doesn't pass muster. The second definition, I appreciate because it at least talks about the devotion and attachment, the relationship of a devotee and the object of its devotion. But it's still doesn't seem to encompass enough of a definition. There still is this worship component that the first definition covers, but doesn't do well enough. So what I want to do is I want to give us a working definition. This is going to be my working definition as we discuss tonight and go forward. I describe idolatry as the ascribing a position of worship and affection to anything other than God. Ascribing a position of worship and affection to anything other than God. So, now that we've defined that, let's kind of go a little bit further. Like I said, 
there's an intrinsic relationship between the devotee and the object of that affection, whatever that object is. And remember, it doesn't have to be a physical object. It just needs to be something that you can point to mentally and say, that is the object of my affection. Whatever that devotion is, the devotee gives to that object adoration, affection, reverence, worship, as we would say. This is an important aspect, and this is really why it's an affront to God. There's two parts to this that I really want to draw out here. Why God takes idolatry so seriously. First off, we have to remember, God is not singularly located. God is not at a certain space, at a certain address, at a certain time. It's not like I can give you GPS coordinates to God. God is in all things. So for us to take one object, let's just say my water bottle here, if I was to singularly locate my worship and adoration and affection to this water bottle, God is bigger than this. So for us to diminish our point of worship, it's an affront to God. It's basically saying, I don't care how big you are, this is what I choose to give my love to. While God is saying, I'm so much bigger than that. The second thing I want to point out is that the thing that is worshipped most often, well, actually, no, in every case, really, the thing worshipped that is an idol, that's really what I want to go with, the thing that's worshipped that's an idol, is always of lesser value than God. Or again, go back to my previous statement, how God is all things. He created all things. He is in all things. For us to choose anything other than Him, which is the eternal perfect standard by which all things are created and all things are judged, anything else has to, by definition, be imperfect. Because if it was perfect, it would be God. This is the old Anselmian ontological argument. Anything you could conceive of more perfect would have to then be God, because God has to be, by definition alone, the most perfect ontological being. So everything, by definition alone, is lesser. It is flawed. It is temporary. It has cracks in its surface. And for God, this is again another part of the insult. This just kind of adds insult to the injury already inflicted. He says, or this is idea of why would you sell out what you already had in the perfect with God for something that is lesser? It's again basically saying, I don't care who you are, almighty, eternal, perfect God creator, I'd rather have this. It says the famous Christian scientist and philosopher uh, Blaise Pascal once said, in his famous work called Pascal's Wager, why would you want to give up the eternal and wager that against having the temporary when you could eschew the temporary to gain the eternal? So this, like I said, is the idea that God has of an ultimate betrayal. Often idolatry is presented in the Old Testament as a form of adultery which we'll talk about later in the series. Again, one of the commandments you cannot break. Uh, 
But this idea of, as we would say, uh, you know, a spouse having an affair on, an, on another, or this idea of the ultimate just gut-wrenching betrayal, kind of like being stabbed in the back by the person standing next to you. E too, Brute, right? This idea that I trusted you, I gave to you, I poured into you, I gave you every bit of myself, as God has done, right? And yet, we take it and say, nah, no thanks. I'd rather have that. All through the Old Testament, the Israelites were constantly cautioned by prophet after prophet. And again, the Israelites would turn back to their false gods, back to their idols, back to their devious ways, away from the Lord. They did it again and again and again and again and again and again, numerous times. Over and over and over. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that I truly believe this was what sent them ultimately into exile. This continued disobedience of turning themselves away from the true Lord, God Yahweh, and turning to the things that they had in the world. The temporary things, the idols, the false gods, as the, as the Old Testament says, the Baals right? They continually turn to the gods of the peoples around them. This is why throughout the Pentateuch, they're constantly reminded, do not intermarry with the other peoples in this land you're going to. It had nothing to do with culture or, or not so much culture or race or anything like that. What it had to do with is these people, these pure Israelites, God's people, intermarrying, and then their hearts being divided when they're married into a family or a culture that is pagan. God said, no, don't do that. Stay true to your first love, me. But instead, they continually did this. If you read throughout the Old Testament, this is a thing, but also even as far as into the New Testament, this became an issue. We read where Paul talks about in Romans 1 how people gave up their senses almost. They, even though they knew the truth of God, they gave up the image, or sorry, gave up worship for an image of something else. They made for themselves idols, and instead of worshiping the Creator, as it says in uh, Romans 1, I think 20, instead of worshiping the Creator, they worshiped the created. And so God gave them over to their abashed uh, passions and lusts. Now let's, I want to point out something here. At the end of this verse, it, it points out that God is a jealous God. Now I think there needs to be a little bit of qualification for this. God is a jealous God, but the word here is not the same word that we would use in terms of jealous as we are. Like again, like a jealous lover. It's a divine attribute that only God has. In fact, the Hebrew word here is the word kana, Q-A-N-N-A. And this word is used only six times in the Bible, and it's used only in reference to God. It is not just a jealousy in terms of the way like you have something that I want, and therefore I sit here and fume like a little child. No, it is a divine, righteous uh, longing for something that it loves by God's own definition and his own attributes 
this thing, or in us case, us, his people, this longing that God has to have all to himself. It's a divine attribute that is only ascribable to God. So when it says that God is a jealous God, it's not presenting him in a human context. It's saying that only God is qualified and capable and worthy, not only of this attribute, but ultimately, go back to that relationship, remember, he's the only one worthy of the devotion that would complete that relationship. Now, in idolatry, there is, I think, a multitude of sins represented. It's not just one. It's not just that the idolater is kind of a, an all-inclusive package. There are multiple things in here. First off, there's the elements of pride, right? Pride's the root of all things. You know, the person, the idolater thinks, I can worship or love or give devotion to what I want, how I want, and when I want. Why do I have to follow God when instead I have X, whatever X is? Well, that just forms one corner of this thing. Across from that, you have fear. If I don't show enough love and devotion to whatever X is, then something bad will ultimately happen. Well, directly across from that, now you have laziness. It's uncomfortable to worship God when it's so much easier. It takes less effort. It's more comfortable just to worship X. And then filling out this paradigm, the parallelogram, I guess you could say, you have negligence. And that is this X, whatever X is, is just a bigger priority in my life right now. You see, these four sins form the four corner posts that make an altar. And on this altar, we daily take our own birthright as God's chosen people and sacrifice on this altar our birthright to our infernal masters, which is those sins that want to lead us astray. So you may be wondering, what is an idol? Well, this is, this is where this really kind of gets tough. The truest answer here is pretty much anything. Remember my definition. Anything has the potential to be an idol. Anything that is loved, adored, shown devotion to, worshipped, that is not God. Well, guys, that can be really anything. Let's look at the text, right? It lists three different things that it prohibits you doing. First off, to not make the form or not take the form of any figure, right? Male, female, anything like that. See, these are the essential properties that make something appear a certain way. So you should not have any specifically formed image or thing within a certain form that you can worship because our God is formless. The next it says is the likeness. Remember, the likeness of any creature. It's important about this is that nothing that we worship should have any likeness because any likeness that we have comprehended is again a creation. It is not the creator. We see God in the works of his hands. 
but we can't see God face to face yet. And lastly, you have the observance of anything. Remember when the writer is talking about looking at the moon and the stars and these things that we would long to be around because our own desire for power and pride of, of self wants us to be able to be where the moon and the stars are. You know, and we've come long ways, right? But we still can't be in the presence of these things. And so God is telling us that we should not honor and revere these things, even if they're powerful, even if they have, you know, some sense of magnanimity, even if they have a sense of uh, grandeur. Many cultures in the past have worshipped the moon and the stars and the celestial bodies. But God said, these are still things I created. They bear my image, but they are not me. You see, again, it goes back to the definition. Anything has the potential in your life to be elevated to that place of worship. Now, some may say, well, it kind of depends on your definition of worship. Well, again, let's go back to my working definition. In fact, let's go back to the previous definitions. Take mine off the table. Let's go back to good old Merriam-Webster. You see, the second definition says that anything with an immeasurable or an abundance of devotion can be an idol. Well, again, there's a relationship here. It's about that proposition to, that little word, T-O, right? Anything that we give to something else, any love, any devotion, any adoration, any reverence that we give to, T-O, something else, Because the devotee, us, has a unilateral relationship with the object. The object gives us nothing back in return, especially in the case of an idol. There's nothing that it can give us. If you take a wooden statue of, I don't know, Mickey Mouse, and you take Mickey Mouse and put it on your mantelpiece, and you say, this is my God, all praise be to Mickey Mouse. What happens if your house catches fire, and that figure burns up? You know what I'm talking about. It, you're left with ashes. Where's the God? Was it that? If that's the case, poof, your God's gone. Congratulations, need a new one. You see, anything we give the devotion to, it's a unilateral relationship. It gives us nothing back in return. We give it everything, it gives us nothing. But that is not the way with God our Father. Right? God gives us everything. We sang earlier, the breath in our lungs. We praise you. Right? It's your breath. You give us everything, life, language, with which to praise you, love, with which to express our adoration to you. All of these things, a relationship with God is not a unilateral street. It is very much two-way, 
And I would dare say it's very much lopsided. God gives us everything, and he just expects us to give back the best that we have and not give it to other things. Now, I want to take a second real quick to talk about iconography. It's a big fancy word. It was an argument in the basis of the early church around the fourth, between the 4th and 8th centuries excuse me, of the church coming into being. It was early on denounced and then reinstated and denounced and reinstated. Basically, it was an argument that said, because you have not seen God, any icon, like you look behind me, there's a cross, right? This is an icon. Or like the image of Jesus on the cross, what we call like the crucifix, or the images of Mary, or pictures of Jesus, or anything like that. All of these resemblances were bad. And like I said, the church went back and forth on this. Some people said, no, 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 it's idolatry. Some people said, no, it's just an icon. It's just supposed to be symbolic. And up until about the 8th century, this was a pretty big deal. And later, uh, the church in the Seventh Lateran Council banned it. And then back in around 1842, 43, the church came around and said, no, it's okay. We realize they're just symbols. And, but even to this day, numerous churches, denominations especially, you walk in their churches on a single image related to any type of Christological theology. There's no cross, there's no Jesus, there's no pictures, there's no nothing. They hold to this pretty stringently. Now, I would say there's a very big difference between an idol and an icon. And I have come to the place where I think that as long as the heart behind it, again, is not giving in this unilateral relationship worship to an icon, then that icon doesn't become an idol. In the same way that we, when we do the Lord's Supper, this Sunday we'll be doing the Lord's Supper, and in the same way we don't believe as Baptists that the juice and the bread physically become what they call transubstantiate into the physical body and physical blood of Jesus. We just don't believe that. We, we believe that it is a very solemn ordinance that we observe. It is something worthy of reverence, but it's still a symbol. It's an icon. It's done in remembrance of an actual event. And so I think that with iconography, we can say that as long as we're not worshiping the cross as it's presented or the image of Jesus, because let's be honest, they didn't have Polaroids back then. We don't really know what he looked like. As long as we're not worshiping these man-made images, but instead using them as artifacts to remember who God is and the power behind him, then I think icons have a place. So, where does this leave us in our modern context? Well, as we come to a close, I really want to kind of drill this whole thing down. There's an old saying that too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. I mean, let's be honest, even the little gummy vitamin C's, you could overdose on, right? You can eat too many that they become toxic. So I think this is never more true than when it comes to devotion and attention to those things that are not God. You see, anything good can be an idol. If it takes the top priority on your list, it's in the wrong place. See, everything in our life has a priority order. 
And ultimately, God has to be the only object, the only thing, the only person above the line. Everything else has to, by very definition alone, fall below the line. If anything ever creeps up and goes above the line with God, or even worse, usurps God in this pecking order, you've gone too far. Your life has to be reprioritized. You are committing idolatry. Because whatever it is, the minute it goes and takes the same place in a co-equal stance or even above God, you have made an idol of whatever that is, and it has to either go or be put back in order in right place. Nothing can ever be ahead of God in your life and still be in right standing. This can happen very, very quickly. If you remember the very beginning of this passage that we looked at, it starts off by saying, watch yourselves very closely. That's because Moses knew this is easy to do. You've got to keep a quick eye on yourself. You have to be very diligent in walking the right line. Because, like I said, too much of a good thing can easily become a bad thing. Something in your life that you think is good, that is beneficial, and is truly, rightly good and beneficial, can very easily and very quickly become an idol that you have to deal with. Are all idols carved out of bone or ivory or stone or wood? No, absolutely not. Not all idols are physical things. So what are some examples? What about your job? This kind of hits close to home, and this is going to be a little uncomfortable to think about, but we have to wrestle with this. Does your job or your desire for, let's say, a better job or maybe even a future job override your faith in God's plan for your life? What about your pastimes? What about your hobbies, right? Are you staying at home watching football instead of going to church on Sunday? Are you spending more money on the things to do your specific hobby with, whatever it is, than you are helping foreign missions or giving to the church? What about your relationship with your significant other or your spouse? Are you more afraid to confess your sins to them personally than to confess your sins to God? Do you give lip service to God in the moment, God forgive me for that, but then tremble at thinking, oh, I have to tell my wife or my husband or my girlfriend or my boyfriend what I've done? What about your friendships or your personal status, your social standing? Are you more concerned with the influence that you have personally or the likes that you have in your life than you are with spending time with God in a personal relationship with Him or letting see people are letting people see, excuse me, the influence of God in your life? Are you more concerned with your personal influence and not the influence of Christ in your daily walk? What about achieving perfection? As we go into today's society in a world in which people can have many different surgeries, many different procedures done to achieve this idea of a perfect form, or things that they can do to perfect themselves. It's almost self-induced salvation. Are you forgetting that God made you for a purpose? Instead of seeking more ways with which to glorify yourself with the things that you do, are you forgetting to glorify God by just living humbly, seeking justice and loving mercy? 
Now, let's get to the harder ones. What about living righteously? What, are we becoming pharisaical in what we do? Are you becoming legalistic in your actions? Forgetting that it is only by grace that you have been saved, not by your own works. You did nothing for this. God loved you even though you were still a sinner and showed his love for you in this, that he sent his son to die for you despite your broken state. What about the church? What about the building or the grounds? What about the worship in your, in your sanctuary, the worship styles or the music that's played? What about the decorations? What about the accoutrement to your worship set? The robes for the choir or the, the, the style of Bibles or hymnals? What about your church? Have you forgotten that God's temple is in us as believers has nothing to do with the sanctuary carpet or the musical stylings and selections. And finally, what about your own Christianity? Do you strive in your own power to do far more than God wants you to do, all while neglecting what He's called you to do? And to love and to live and to exemplify the heart that He gave you. They say that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And sadly, I think when it comes to idolatry, many of our brothers and sisters have found themselves lost somewhere on the turnpike. They come to too many hard decisions. They try too hard to do too much for far too many wrong reasons. And ultimately, they have too many good intentions that lead them to too many dead-end roads for far too long. What do we do with the idols in our lives? These giants, we got to break the cycle. We cannot keep our priorities in flux. Everything in our life has to be subservient to the will of God. Only by aligning ourselves in this way Will his will in our life ever be truly manifest and affected? See, these idols are strongholds in our lives. They're literally like giants roaming the hillside, right? And alone, we cannot tackle them. If you remember, think about the spies when they sent the 12 spies, right, into the land of Canaan. What did they come back and say? Ten of them were terrified. They said, no, 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 we, we, no, no, I don't care what God said. We're not taking this place. There's no way. Why? There are giants in the land. They were terrified of them. But who was it that spoke up? There was two. One of which, Joshua. And in his book, we have God telling us, do you not remember to be strong and courageous? Don't be frightened, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You see, we can trust in him who is bigger, who is better who is singularly worthy of our adoration and our worship. Christ can make us free. It is through our faith in Jesus and our devotion to Him and Him alone that can slay these giants, 
that can lay low these things in our life that would try to pop themselves up and mask and obscure our view of a perfect God. In closing tonight, I want to read you something that I think really eloquently, I don't want to say beautifully, eloquently illustrates this point. This is a a poem by famous uh, poet Edward Arlington Robinson, who was known for his kind of little zingers at the end of things. And I think you'll see that this is quite interesting as we think about this idea of these flawed images that we adore. This is a poem called Richard Corey. Whenever Richard Corey went downtown, when people on the pavement looked at him, he was a gentleman from soul to crown, clean-favored and imperially slim. And he was always quietly arrayed, and he was always human when he talked, but still he fluttered pulses when he said, good morning, and he glittered when he walked. And he was rich, yes, richer than a king, and admirably schooled in every grace. In fine, we thought that he was everything to make us wish that we were in his place. So on and on we worked and waited for the light and went without the meat and cursed the bread. And Richard Corey, one calm summer night, went home and put a bullet through his head. You see, this poem illustrates the human heart condition. We want something to worship. We just don't want it to be God. And so we find these things that are flawed, that are imperfect. And the whole town loved Richard Corey. They looked at him as this paragon of perfection, this idol with which to live up to. And they went without meat and, and went without bread and didn't eat and didn't spend money on things so that they could ultimately live and be like him. But at the end of the day, what happened to Richard Corey? He hated his life so much that he killed himself because he was flawed. He was not perfect. He was not worthy of their worship. You see, there's a reason why God prohibits idolatry. And it's only because He is the only thing worthy of our affection and our adoration and our devotion and our worship. See, everything else just pales in comparison to His greatness. Everything. So maybe tonight you've been struggling. There are some strongholds in your life. Maybe there are some things that have threatened to take the place of God. Maybe you've thought too much of them or yourself. Well, tonight you can get that right. It's time to offer up those things as a sacrifice to the Lord. Maybe you have some reprioritizing in your life that needs to be done. Well, you can do that tonight. Don't wait. Get that right today. Any moment where anything stands co-equal with God or above Him has to be fixed. has to be fixed tonight. Maybe you have some more things to clean out. Maybe you still have some more giants that are roaming your promised land. Well, God can take care of those. All you have to do is surrender. Maybe you never surrendered, but surrender tonight to His Son, Jesus, and He can help you put those things right. If you've never followed the Lord, He is waiting on you, hoping that you will stop worshiping the things in your life and ultimately turn your heart to Him. He is jealous, but he's jealous for you. He wants you. And only God is worthy enough to say that. Let's pray.
Gracious Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this time. I thank you for this opportunity. And I pray for each and every one of the men and women that are here, Father, and that are listening online. Father, I pray that you would help us to put the things in our life down that would threaten our relationship with you, that would take the place of you, that would block our views of you, Father. And ultimately, I just pray that you would be glorified in all that we do. If there's any here that doesn't know you in a real and personal way, Father, I just pray that they would be pricked to move and that ultimately you would be revealed to them in a way that is life-changing as it has been in so many of our lives, mine included. Father, we dedicate ourselves to you and these pale, humbling offerings that we provide, Father. They're not riches. They're not gems or gold. They're not military might or power. They're just simply broken hearts of people that need you now more than ever. Father, it's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.